There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It's the fighting. It's the fighting. Clock. It's the fighting. It's the fighting. Hello boys and girls, welcome to the Fighting Cock the Extra Inch second episode. My name's Windy, I'm your host, and I'm joined by my trusty sidekick, Anthony Lombardi. Lombardi, how are you doing? I'm good, Windy, I'm good, mate. Good, and we're also delighted to be joined by Ewan Roberts, who you might know from Twitter, uh, at Ewan Roberts, or from his excellent writing at various sites and blogs over the years, but especially Goal.com, who uh, he's recently left, but you did some sterling work for Goal.com, Ewan. Yeah, thanks very much. I was saying earlier that you kind of joined Goal.com uh, just after they stopped being a bit of a joke website, um, where they kind of had these wild transfer rumours, and you joined at the time uh, they became a proper football website, and you said, oh, they became a proper football website after I joined. Yeah. <laughs> Is that how you see it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think they had a reputation as like a kind of bedroom blog website, and it established into one of the biggest uh, football websites globally maybe it doesn't have as good a reputation in the UK and then like the social media presence is off, off the charts as well so what were you doing for them I mean we'll, we'll talk about your kind of background in a bit but were you just what were you brought in as there uh, brought in started off uh, just on the news desk writing stories subbing stories uh, match reporting going to games and then moved to chief sub and then features editor and then I left. Climbed ladder and then walked off. Yep, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Did they kind of cotton on quite early that you were into tactics and analytics and that yeah, kind of side? Yeah, Goal was quite good because um, the company that owned them also bought uh, Opta at the same time. So you had this wealth of uh, numbers that you could delve into and we probably used it a little bit better than some of the other mainstream um, places using but then obviously not quite as in-depth as a lot of the uh, bloggers that you'll see, the stats bloggers. Um, so yeah, it was, it was quite a nice uh, coincidence that they happened to buy or get use of Opta stats at the same time that I was there. Excellent, and you've still got access to uh, Opta, which is useful for everyone, I'm sure. <laughs> right, um, before, I mean, we'll come back on to Ewan's work in a bit, but um, we've got a few topics to get through. But first things first, thanks for your uh, feedback on the first Extra Inch pod. My favourite piece of feedback was from Teddy Loxley on Twitter, who said, if Love the Shirt uh, appeals to your inner scumbag, TFC Extra Inch appeals to your inner scholar. So coys. I enjoyed that feedback. I thought that was excellent. Yeah, it was a nice bit of feedback. I, it, I mean, it was quite nerve-wracking doing the, the first Extra Inch, kind of like splitting away from the rest of them, trying to behave, trying to not let get carried away because football's quite a passionate topic 
But um, I was really happy with the feedback, and I thought Nathan was great, and I thought Windy was good, even though he likes to criticise himself. I thought he was did a good good oh, job. Too generous, mate. Too kind. Nathan was excellent, and we'll definitely be getting um, Nathan back on. Um, we'd like to make him um, a regular on every other extra inch, depending on schedules. But um, yeah, the feedback on the first uh, episode was fantastic, and Nathan, that feedback on Nathan was great. That's the first time he'd ever been on the podcast. I thought he was a complete natural. So, so uh, there's no pressure, Ewan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pressure, Ewan. <laughs> right, we're going to talk first um, about Spurs' DNA because um, Swimming in a Pipe Dream on Reddit uh, gave us some feedback in the thread that we started on there. And he said he'd love to hear some discussions on our favourite um, methods of teams in the Premier League and how other clubs' tactics have changed on different ma- managers and specifically whether Spurs actually has a DNA that pushes us towards certain managers or pushes certain managers to try more attacking brand of football than they would at other clubs. Um, the first thing I would say is that the next Fighting Cock fanzine is based around elements of this subject. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly touched upon. So, it, I mean, that's something to look out for over the coming weeks. The fanzine is getting close to completion now. There's some really good uh, sort of tactical pieces about different coaches at, at Tottenham over the years. So that's something to look out for in the future. But in terms of, sort of Spurs' DNA, I, 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 I looked up DNA. I, I got a... Uh, a definition of it because obviously DNA in terms of the type of acid that is in humans is one thing but the kind of metaphorical description is the fundamental and distinctive characteristics or qualities of someone or something especially when regarded as unchangeable Um, I mean what do you guys think our fundamental characteristics are as a club and have they changed over the years well our history is based on glory and push and run and playing beautiful football and then over the last maybe 20, 30 years, hasn't quite happened, but we've still managed to have the odd flair player. Um, I'm thinking about maybe Ginola, those kind of guys, Bale, a player who can like maybe, even if the team can't capture the imagination, the individual can. And um, I think we've kind of strayed away from that now with the kind of like our collective, like we're more of a team now. But I think the Spurs DNA is to do with trying to play football the best way that we can do. Yeah, and if if the question is, uh, are we more attracted to certain managers because they play a sort of Spurs type of football? Mm-hmm. Ironically, we've not. Well, Daniel Levy hasn't been attracted to that manager because AVB plays quite a stale uh, possession-based game where you would say that he's more looking for control rather than creativity. And then Pochettino's not dissimilar in mm-hmm. that as well, and it sort of creates a weird dynamic where everyone wants us to be a free-flying attacking football team and you're not quite getting it but equally the results are good the performances are good you're happy with the harmony of the team so it's difficult to be too critical even if it's not quite clicking yeah i think the the, maybe the the two kind of proper tottenham dna managers we've had in recent times probably ozzy ardiles and glenn hoddle those are two guys that really were you could almost say they were they were spurs and for ardiles it you know, it was. I don't know if, if Hewan's old enough to remember, but that, that first season where he had Ginola and he had that front five, it was. I mean, it was terrible, but it was amazing because the the, the attacking football we played. Was, didn't have Ginola, did he? I'm sorry, I meant Klingsman. Yeah. yeah, Klingsman, Dimitrescu, all those guys. That that front five was amazing, and but you know he was flawed because he couldn't couldn't put the rest of the team together. And then someone like Hoddle, who who would epitomise Spurs and the beautiful game. He was unable to put a team together and he was either hamstrung by Levy and the signings or um, just it was the wrong time, wrong fit for him at that, at that moment. 
it's really interesting you bring up those two because I wanted to mention something about them which I'll come on to in just a second. But firstly, there's a really great um, article in our upcoming fanzine by a guy called Alfie Potts about Peter McWilliam, who was known as Peter the Great, and he's the longest-serving Spurs manager in our history, 19 years over two separate spells, um, between 1912 and 1927, and then 1938 and 1942. And Peter McWilliam is kind of famous for having something of um, an impact on other managers. So under him... Uh, he coached Vic Buckingham, Arthur Rowe and Bill Nicholson. Buckingham is the guy who then went on to manage Ajax and Barcelona in the 60s and 70s and gave Johan Cruyff his debut. So he's kind of attributed in some way to the, the, the idea of total football. And when I thought about that, the fact that he'd coached Rowe and Nicholson, it made me realise just how, man- how many managers we'd had who were former players. Um, so Rowe, Nicholson and then Venables, Ardiles, Hoddle and of course Sherwood plus yeah. caretakers in Perryman, Houston and Allen and so I kind of thought these are these are managers who've already got Spurs in their own DNA mm-hmm. because they've, they've been at the club, they know what it's about they understand their history, they understand the significance of previous managers and previous greats and that style um, and I think all of those managers in one way or another wanted to play an attacking brand and other than Rowe and Nicholson, none of them particularly succeeded in doing so. Very hard to replicate in the modern era. Um, it's really interesting what you and said about AVB and, and Daniel Levy because Levy, pe- pe- one of the big criticisms of Daniel Levy is that he's not giving the fans what they want or hasn't given the fans what they want over a period of time and that he's all about the balance sheet and not about what happens on the pitch. Um, and the fact that he was willing to appoint managers who aren't exactly playing exciting brands of football is, is certainly ties into that. I think with Pochettino now, we've got a really nice balance, actually, of someone who gets it. He does get the kind of Tottenham history and the style, and certainly he, was, he played for some stylish teams when he was a footballer, but also understands the importance of results and a, a team philosophy, like you say. And it's also, I think we've kind of changed as well as Tottenham supporters that we don't need to see the individual doing the flair. Now, we've kind of, I don't know whether it's more educated or the way the football's changed, that we can see beauty in a team performance. In there's no, I mean, there's, stylistically, a team pressing and closing down isn't a beautiful thing, but football's changed enough for us now to appreciate it. And it is kind of strange when you go to White Hart Lane and you hear people get, you feel people get really excited when one player closes down and the other one closes down. Yeah. Instead of before when you'd have like one midfielder like kind of hanging around and then Ginola trying to jump two, three players. So we've changed. I've, and football's changed and it's quite nice to see Spurs have um, have matured a bit yeah actually the pre- watching te- your own team pressing yeah. well is one is actually become one of the most exhilarating things especially if it's done really effectively and maybe if you don't have the kind of swashbuckliness going forward with on the ball you can have sort of a degree of passion and pace about the way that you press off the ball mm-hmm. and I think football as well and I'd say Pochettino's at the forefront of this it's kind of moving away from uh, open football and that it is more about uh, control and balance and maybe there's been sort of a little bit too much long shots from us recently but that sort of uh, playing the percentages I guess and I think it will be kind of natural. I read an article recently about the death of the Galazzo that maybe you are losing players that can will hit one from 40 yards yeah. like there's absolutely no way David Bentley would smash one over Jens Lehmann from... Well, not Jens Lehmann. It was um, Almunia. Almunia yeah. from 40 yards. 
Um, there's just no way that that would happen, probably under any manager in the Premier League now, because it's just such a low-risk thing, and it's all about risk and mm. how much uh, you're prepared to uh, risk going forward before sacrificing yourself at the back. And then it it does create an issue, I think, in terms of how much fun there is to be had mm. on a football pitch um, and how much of it is spontaneous and natural um, and how much of it kind of feels slightly mechanical. Mm. But, um, yeah, I think that's probably the way football's going to go, that it's going to be more about efficiency than... Uh, exuberance. It's interesting though because when Poch first came in we were kind of, actually to say it's when he first came in is wrong last season essentially when we were when we were playing so many incisive forward passes so early after winning the ball back um, that that was such an exciting brand of football at a time to be a Spurs fan and now I, I do feel as though we're not as forward thinking as early and we're trying to pass the ball around at the back a lot more there's there's times where we'll get the ball in the full-back area. It'll be one of the central midfielders who's dropped into that area and they'll realise there's nothing immediately on ahead of them so they'll just roll the ball along the back line and the crowd do get a little bit grumpy at that. I can I can understand it because it's not exactly exciting to watch. But at the same time, it does frustrate me because they, they are, they're doing the right thing. They're trying to move teams out of shape so they can play those forward passes. But we've talked about how we've evolved, but everyone else has evolved as well. You know, yeah, exactly. There's a team like Burnley mm. who are probably will get relegated are coming and they've got a game plan and they're able they're tactically astute enough to be able to do it and they scored a scrappy goal and then they denied us space and um, teams are getting cleverer and we need to we need to improve and we'll do that by some of our key players playing a bit quicker but you've got to remember everybody else now has got a tactic to work against us and it's, it's even thrown someone like Pep Guardiola off who's got better players than we have and he's got probably a better style than Pochettino has, but they've had similar problems of, you know, you meet like a deep defence, it's quite difficult to break them down. And he said this week that they spent two and a half hours a day training on just winning second balls. Yeah. And that shows how he's had to adapt to teams like Burnley, who their game plan isn't necessarily particularly fun to watch, but it is really super effective and it's really difficult to play against, especially when it has become this battle for control and you can't control something where it's all about 50-50s and luck. Um, and that's quite an interesting uh, sort of like face-off, the way that you've got someone like Pochettino who is all about um, being in total ownership of your game and Burnley who are kind of leaving it up to chance mm-hmm. but they're trying to just make sure that they're a little bit quicker, a little bit faster to the ball. Do you think this has got maybe this kind of other team's improvement is kind of down to, um, you can kind of relate that to maybe Jose Mourinho's fall from grace? that he's not the kind of manager who's able to win everything anymore. He used to have this home record, like we're at Inter, Porto, Chelsea, Madrid, where he would just never lose at home. But his style of football relied on the other team almost coming out and attacking him. But now the other team's refusing to do that. He's getting a lot of draws. He's getting a load of... He's getting, Especially at home, he's getting maybe scraping 1-0 wins and stuff like that. And um, I think Guardiola is suffering from that, that... Teams are. He's, he wants to dance. Guardiola. He's all about expression, and he's turning up at a disco, and the the the, the, the other girl is not interested. <laughs> so he's having to almost like pole dance to try and entertain himself. <laughs> is that him winning second balls? It is interesting though the way like the top six, um, and like the way Mourinho plays, the way Klopp plays, the way Guardiola plays. It almost feels like a footballing stone paper scissors because mm. one style of play is really good at playing against another but it's weak against another style of play yeah. and then that does create like a kind of um, a difficulty because does Pochettino change the way he plays yeah. even though he knows it's going to work against some teams in the top six does he then sacrifice some of that to play the other teams 
And do you think that's partly why he's mixed things up so much this year in terms of formation and, and style? Is it that he's trying to kind of keep other teams thinking and guessing about what we're going to do? So the three at the back, uh, we play three at the back against Hull, who play with one striker. It seemed completely needless to me to, for us to play with three at the back because it meant that a spare man was always a centre-back, which is particularly unhelpful uh, when you're trying to break a team down. Um, but is that... I mean, is he second-guessing Hull's formation there or is he trying to give them something else to think about? Well, I don't think us having a spare centre-back is a problem because our centre-backs are good enough on the ball. Alderweire, Dai and Vertonghen are all good enough on the ball to, cut, to, to step into midfield. But what it does do is it means Walker and Rose are much further up, so their starting position isn't alongside it. They're already up there and you could see the two assists came from the full-backs. Um, I, th- I think three at the back has, has helped us. I think two of our best performances... Arsenal, especially with three at the back, I thought we were really good. And you could see what the strengths of three at the back were when we played Chelsea. That For the first 20 minutes, they were struggling. But then gradually, they got control of the game. And, you know, you risk. It's high risk when you're playing against wing backs. You can't keep kind of trying to counter-guess them and push them back like Sun was trying to do. Eventually, they'll just outnumber you. It's interesting, actually, the three at the back, because... Usually in the Premier League, it's always been a really short-term thing. Mm-hmm. But you think of Roberto Martinez using it at Wigan and having this short-term boost, but then teams kind of work it out after a while. So I think it would be really interesting with Chelsea to see if, when teams finally work them out, if they do have what Pochettino has in like the, the flexibility to do something different. Well, I don't think they'll be worked out. It took it took everybody like a year to work out Leicester. And you could see that you you don't fight Leicester to beat Leicester. You kind of you force them to come towards you. Yeah. But nobody did that. No one could work that out. And I don't think people will figure Chelsea out. The fact they haven't got European football means that they're able to play the high press and everything else. I think they will rely on not losing key players to injuries, because I think I don't think there'll be many teams that can beat that three-five-two. They're they're three-four-three at the moment. Yeah, but if they lose Costa, you would say that's that's the issue. No Costa, yeah. no party. We have to see what Battery does against um, against Bournemouth. So going back to this idea of DNA briefly, do you? I mean, do you feel like Spurs have more of a distinct fundamental characteristic than other clubs? I mean, I was trying to think of other clubs and their kind of perceived way of playing football, um, and I think they're. I mean, for example, Arsenal have got this kind of reputation now as playing tippy tappy football, but for for a lot of my youth growing up, they were grinding out results under George Graham and playing very ugly football with this kind of unusual offside trap at the time. So I wouldn't necessarily say that they've got this um, history of having a particular style. Um, and then you've got West Brom, who, who who had been playing this awful, awful style of football um, for years, and then suddenly they're actually playing some really good stuff. And you think maybe they've maybe they've broken free of their style. Stoke, uh, another team under Mark Hughes, are playing some really good football. Where uh, historically they you're also forgetting West Ham. They 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 like to talk about how they the, they won the World Cup and they've. They have brought through some good players in their time, but someone like West Brom, they um, a team that was struggling. Pulis, to his credit, he kept them safe. He's made them strong. I still don't think they're the most dynamic team in the world. But then he's added a couple of flair players: Matty Phillips, Chadley, those kind of guys, Rondon, who are able to do something. And he, you know, these kind of teams they take a long time to build. But that's not going to last a generation. That will last maybe a season or two and then they'll have to change up again and maybe Pulis will leave Isn't they're not like building a foundation of good football I think Pulis is interesting because he did kind of have like an evolution at Palace where Stoke he'd had 
maybe a winger like Jonathan Waters, who didn't really offer a lot going forward. He's mm. quite one-paced. And then when he got to Palace, he had Balassi and Zaha, and he realised that actually if you could exploit teams on the break, and it added a more explosiveness to their whole side. And then he took that West Brom, and then they've got Chad Lee Phillips, uh, Rondon, who's powerful, strong, really good on the counter-attack. Mm. Um, I think maybe something with Spurs DNA is that I, I guess you're more inclined to attach yourself to like the footballing roots of the push and run when you haven't actually had that much success recently. So yeah. you'd say someone like Manchester United, what's their football DNA? It's just winning. Um, rather, well, I guess they also complained about Moyes when he was crossing the ball into the box a lot. So they do have that direct style as well. But I wouldn't say uh, any team in the in the Premier League is is so attached to a style of play that they can't uh, adapt and change because for example Arsenal you think first of all grinding out 1-0 wins under George Graham and then kind of counter-attacking at the start of Arsenal Wenger's reign yeah. and then he decided he'd go with Fabregas uh, put Fabregas in and then possession based team and now they're kind of a ma- mishmash of like the, the, the two styles because you wouldn't say that they're like as possession heavy as they have been probably because there was the accusations of Arsenal trying to walk the ball in and stuff like that so they had to adapt and become a bit more direct I mean I'd, I'd hate to start like, spend a long time talking about Arsenal but I think they're one of the teams who don't have an identity they've got players someone like Alexis Sanchez who's who's born to press and play at a high tempo and then they've got players like Ozil who he's unable to do it you saw at Real Madrid Mourinho would roll him off after 60 minutes because he physically is unable to do it so I I they are they are they don't have an identity which is something which I think they're quite upset about their fans if you, if you watch their social media channels but with Spurs' DNA I mean even under Redknapp we were a 4-4-2 team and then some and then Van der Vaart happened and all of a sudden things changed and we had to accommodate this wonderful player who was truly gifted but he couldn't run he had, I think he had a knee operation he was missing his meniscus or something and all of a sudden we had a big man crouch and then Van der Vaart off him and things changed for us and it, it was an interesting time at Spurs you could see some teams we just rolled over and then other teams we struggled against and eventually it was a, we couldn't sustain it over the course of a year I think that's as well the, what Pochettino's brought is that the worst Spurs can play albeit with lesser players than what Redknapp had is a much higher level than the mm. worst that Redknapp's team could play Absolutely, despite yeah. having these superior players because that's you were kind of reliant on this individual brilliance and if it didn't quite click Sometimes it was, you know, it didn't really lead to anything. I mean, you yeah. so rarely see us get thrashed now. I mean, Newcastle yeah, is the, the, the odd one out. Exactly. Um, but there's, um, if you discount Newcastle, it's you have to go back to Pochettino's first season for the last time we lost a match by more than two goals. Whereas in the half season that Sherwood had, that happened six times. So it's it's a massive change. And also, I think it was only at one point, again, up until the Newcastle game, and I think this is probably why Pochettino was even more unhappy than just having conceded a place in the league to Arsenal, is that that result meant that um, for the first time in like over 300 days, we had been behind by two or more goals, and only PSG and Atletico Madrid in the whole of Europe had been... Uh, had a better record than that so it's, it's just really impressively mm. defensively mm. and it is kind of interesting that you would see us especially under Redknapp recently and then in the past as an attacking free-flying team and yet Pochettino is defence first as was AVB The really interesting thing about that is that we would have assumed that that would be a, in a large part down to Toby Alderweireld who is a staggeringly good defender but he was out for a long time at the start of the season and we actually did fine with that. I mean, Dyer was not flawless, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. 
he he's not the perfect centre back yet. But we cope without Toby. I mean, in in many ways, defensively defensively we were fine, but we actually lacked at the other end because of Alvarez's long range passing and the ability to open teams up. Um, so I think it's more to do with the fact the defensive system is just so tight. They're so they're so well drilled. The midfield knows exactly what to do in every situation, and the defence obviously follows as well. Um, staggering, really. But but then I suppose the fact that he was a centre back, Pochettino, that it's it's in 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 many ways it's natural that he's going to think of of building the blocks at the back first and then build upon that. Um, in yeah, a really curious way, sometimes the managers who were centre-backs tend to play more attacking football and the managers that were attackers can sometimes be more defensive. Um, I mean, I can't off the top of my head think of any examples. So sort I don't of overcompensating. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure there are. <laughs> Let's say there are many. many. As soon as you started many. that sentence, I was like, my, my, was, my, my mind was going. <laughs> but um, uh, Dino Zoff was uh, manager of Italy at Euro 2000. And Fancy he, that, an Italian example. Well, because I, if I have to, if I go to help out you and with a football fact, I dip into what you dip into what you know, don't you? And he got criticised when Italy lost the um, Euro 2000 final to France on the golden goal. France just went for it, and it, they said it was his negativity because he was a goalkeeper mm. that lost Italy the final. Instead of going and killing them off because we were winning one nil, he started going more and more defensive. And you know, there you go, a goalkeeper. <laughs> <Thank you>. <laughs> <laughs> So you and we'll talk about you next. Good, <laughs> just to put you on great. the spot, make you feel awkward. So what? So how did you kind of get into football writing originally? Uh, well, I came out of uni and I knew I wanted to write, but I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to write about. And I dabbled with different stuff, like I did travel writing and I did uh, film and TV writing as well, reviewing. Uh, and then yeah, I got this opportunity at Gold to start working there, and it's been really beneficial to be honest, and I've really enjoyed it. And the one thing that I always wrote about even in my spare time even when I was doing other work it was always football so then to be able to do that for a job was kind of amazing really um, and then yeah progressed sort of through the ranks up to features editor and you've always been a Spurs fan yeah brought up as a Spurs fan yeah to an extent I guess I think I'm slightly more uh, obsessed with Spurs than anyone else is in my family But so how did that come about I, I suppose one thing, like I'm from Croydon, so it's like more of like a Crystal Palace area, um, and I think when you're in like that environment of having to kind of like defend your team a bit, like you tend to become a little bit more um, like when you're not in like a Spurs area, you can become a little bit more tribal about it, I guess. So um, especially with, and then moving on to like message boards and stuff like that. When so, uh, for example, Coys. Yeah. When that started, I guess I joined that in like 2006. Um, that like the need to win arguments and stuff that brought out a lot of my writing as well and especially like statistical stuff mm. so like I would like point to Luka Modric in 2008 um, at the when he first signed people didn't really get what he was about and it was quite difficult to try and defend him and sometimes when like you you'd say you're you're a fan of stats people say oh I'm a fan of my eyes and like <laughs> yeah. they kind of discount <laughs> yeah. like 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 it's a trade off between yeah. you either use your eyes or you yeah. look at numbers and the Luka Modric one was really difficult so I don't think stats were really mainstream when he first joined yeah exactly and it was hard to defend him but 
I remember like it's a really tenuous stat, but I think it, Modric had scored maybe like two goals and got like zero assists. And then Xavi had done the exact same thing. And I was like, well, Xavi's the best midfielder in the world. And look at his numbers. <laughs> so they're basically the same. Um, and then, you, but then you like learn more stats and stuff like who scored, things like that, that you get like a broader range of things that you can uh, drill into. And then you see like the number of passes that he plays, pass success, uh, the number of times that he breaks past the midfield the number of times he's passing into the final third and then you start to build up like a much better picture of the player and then you can say okay so in my opinion from watching him Modric is a really good player and then the stats are kind of backing me up as well and then so that's I'd say that was kind of like in terms of how it got into writing it was just trying to win arguments especially with the analytical stats based stuff it was just um, I want a more informed opinion that's how, that's how I first came across you I, I remember very well there's a guy called Trash Post, who you might remember on Coys, Vaguely, also, yeah. um, and you, and I, you were always the two people that I'd look out for because you'd always back up your arguments with really interesting statistics. And I, I always kind of wondered where you guys got your stats from. Um, it's probably whoscored.com back in the day. I can't yeah, remember. I think I opted only start recording stats in 2006. And yeah. Who scored must have been a couple of, couple of years later. Yeah. But the, it, it, it it, that, that is the thing about stats. To... Yeah, it's, it is kind of new that. that it hasn't existed for that long uh, well it has behind the scenes but in like mainstream consumption it has just kind of been goals assists appearances but to get more stuff like you see some of the stuff that some people on Twitter are doing it's unbelievable when you look at it like the way that they measure pressing metrics and things like that it's really cool it's really cool I mean I can I can see why it switches some people off because not everyone wants to see this stuff but that's fine there are different ways of appreciating the game and there are people who have started started out as kind of um, analytics guys on Twitter who were just doing it for fun and have ended up being hired by clubs to analyse opposition teams for upcoming games and and try and help buy the right transfer targets because they've just got such a good understanding of the metrics um, it's, such, it's a real it's a, gro- it's a growth area um, and it's, it's definitely something to keep an eye on because I think it's going to get bigger and bigger um, particularly with the likes of Moneyball and that kind of thing as well we've clocked on now that you need this stuff is Essential when you make a decision about a player, um, and and coaches are getting more and more informed, and they've got teams now working for them to preview opposition teams. And, and TV shows are getting more yeah. informed. Like you've got Monday Night Football, and in, in Germany during the World Cup, they were using uh, Rafa Honestein right wrote a good article about Stefan Reinhardt, who used to play for Bayer Leverkusen, and he l- finished football. I think he might have been twenty seven, and he created his own sort of like stats performance company, and he created a metric of measuring how many players. Uh, a bypass, I think it's called packing. So, for example, he could say that Urzil, in the space of a game, he takes 90 players out of the equation across the game from his movement or his passing. And that's quite an interesting way of how, working out how players create space and how they manipulate space. And then that was being used on German television, on their broadcaster, saying this is Tony Cruz's packing data. And I think the more and more that's going to feed into uh, UK coverage of football as well that's incredible so I mean how would they even define I think it's just like when the ball is passed so say Tony Cruz plays the ball into Mesut Ozil and say he takes out the whole midfield then they've taken out four players so it gives you an idea of like progressive play uh, the way players are using space Ozil as well for example he's really good at finding space Mm. but how do you with the current stats how do you like support that how do you show that and I think that's one of the interesting things about stats is the new ways that they're finding to um kind of visualise what a player is doing on the field. So interesting. And the thing that I've seen crop up so much more recently is those kind of pass maps where you see players, uh, they're, they're, they're 
dots are bigger if they've received the ball more from certain players in certain areas. Yeah. Um, and this is the kind of thing that's that's it's, it's, as I was saying, it's, it's growing. Um, it's going to get bigger. Um, so if you don't like stats, then you're in trouble because they're kind of taking over a little bit. Um, but really, really interesting stuff. But you we- can still, as you said, you can still follow football without without the stats. Yeah, of you course can you can. Kind of, yeah. You can follow it at a kind of just an, an eye level. Just you don't have to dig as deep. That's kind of what I love about Twitter in a way because it allows you to follow whatever you want in the way you want to follow it. So my Twitter timeline is very much tailored towards, obviously, football um, and specific types of, of reporters and, and contributors because I like receiving my kind of news in that way. Someone else will have lists for different things and dip in and mm-hmm. out. Um, someone else will not use Twitter because they just want to watch the game, make their own judgments and go and have a chat in the in the pub with their mates. Um and actually, all these ways of of enjoying football are absolutely fine. People can do what they like. And and when people get so angry about the stats crowd, I sort of feel defensive of them. I feel like I need to defend them because actually, that's yeah. they're not sucking the fun out of football necessarily. If they find stats fun, and yeah, there are people who find stats fun. That's that's fine. Like enjoy it. Go and and actually. They might even make a career out of it eventually. And you can you can you can think a car's beautiful without knowing how the engine works. Just, Whereas some people are fascinated yeah. by the, the details about a car. Yeah, yeah. really interesting. Um, we're going to go on to talk about our midfield a bit. Um, when I was kind of asking for topics of, of things we can discuss, one of the things that came up over and over again was the kind of Dyer versus Wanyama debate. Um, and is it Ali Yid on Spurs Community said he'd love to get our views on um, the knock-on effect of moving Dyer into defence. And his own thoughts were that he can do a job in defence and Wanyama can do a, jo- a job in defensive midfield, but he felt we're missing the chemistry that Dyer and Dembele had last season. Um, not just in terms of allowing our fullbacks to push forward, but freeing up Ericsson, Ali and Lamella to play to make more positive runs. He says, personally, I feel Dyer is or was one of our most influential players last season and made us tick by moving him back with sacrificing a 9 out of 10 performance for, for two seven out of hot, seven point. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Five out of 10 performances. Um, would, do you both agree with that? Who's getting the nine out of 10? So Wanyama's a nine out of 10. Wanyama, he's saying you're sacrificing Dyer's nine out of 10 performance for Wanyama and Dyer giving seven and a half out of 10. Firstly, I think it's really difficult to know how much it's been affected because there hasn't been a lot of stability. Mm. There's been a lot of injuries and suspensions. Mm. So I was looking at there's only been four games where Pochettino has had a direct choice between Wanyama or Dyer with Dembele alongside one of them and then Alderweire behind because obviously Dyer's had to do a lot of covering in centre-back anyway, so he hasn't been an option. Um, and then actually against Hull, he could have had that choice but ended up playing Dyer in the back well three. In back three, yeah, exactly. So it's it's, it's kind of weird that um, it has kind of become quite a big deal this whole Dyer versus Wanyama debate because I don't see that there's been that much instances where there has been one or the other um, I do tend to agree that you lose something with Dyer not in there because he is a slightly more confident passer he's a bit better at bringing the um, the ball through the midfield and into the final third and he is a lot better at splitting the centre-backs he's more natural playing at centre-back he's more natural pulling out to the full-back positions Um but then I, I really like Wanyama. I don't think that he his presence is necessarily having an adverse effect on the rest of the team. I think the one of the weirder things I find about him is that he's playing quite a dynamic role. So, for example, against Swansea, he had two of the best chances. He missed one from like dead centre of goal. Uh, he had the best chance of the match against Man United. Uh, he scored against Swansea, and was then talking post match about how they'd been giving him stick for not scoring enough mm. so it's weird that he creates more chances than Dyer. he tackles more than Dyer. he's got better tackle success rate he dribbles more he plays more passes into the final third so he is kind of more of an all-rounded player and he does a lot of things well but then i find it strange that he sort of does have a reputation as being like an out-and-out destroyer and that if we did want a dynamic player to sit alongside dembele it's weird that we didn't go and sign a properly all-rounded yeah exactly and then why are we linked with uh, a Ross Barkley when you could get a, a Morgan Steidlin who again can fulfil that role slightly better? Mm. I think um, Dembele, the loss of form in Dembele and his suspensions and everything else, I think that's affected Wanyama. I, pref- I prefer Wanyama at the moment in midfield. I think Dyer started the season and I didn't think he looked quite ready. Maybe he's suffering, I know it's not his second season, but maybe he's suffering from second season, expectation. He's had a hard year and everything else. But I've I've liked Wanyama. I wouldn't drop Wanyama now for Dyer. I would keep him going. And um, kind of like hope Dembele picks it back up again. I think that's, that's the key as well. Dembele has been so off form compared to last yep. season. And last mm. season, he was the key. He did so much good work. When we talk about coming up against a team that parks the bus and you've got to get through a crowd of players, he did so much good work in passing or just dribbling through people. And when you take even like a, like a fraction of that away, let alone like he's had quite a big dip off, you lose a lot as a team. And I think that the players ahead of him are suffering as a result as well. I was going to say exactly the same thing that Dembele is the key um, and I, I think part of the argument is that people feel that Dyer alongside Dembele will get the best out of Dembele I'm not sure I agree with that funnily enough my perception of Dyer over Wanyama was that he was a more expansive passer and that he would switch play more readily and therefore I felt that he would have a, a much higher average pass length but as it turns out I looked into it and Wanyama has a higher average pass length than Dyer so he's playing just as many expansive passes um, 
he isn't quite playing as many forward passes. So for Dyer's 38.42 every 90 minutes, it's 34.59 for Wanyama. But that's not a huge difference. Um, and if you're if you're Wanyama and you're winning the ball and you're giving it simple or you're, or you're run, actually what tends to happen is he moves forward with the ball more. He's, he carries the ball forward and then will possibly play a sideways pass or a backwards pass from a more advanced position. Um, so that, that would explain that one away. The thing that I think is quite noticeable is that Dyer is more of an interceptor and Wanyama is more into kind of a, a going in for a challenge or making himself an obstacle. Uh, whereas Dyer seems to sort of read the game more and, and anticipate where the ball's going to go. And I think that's one thing that has had a slight um, impact. And, and that could explain possibly some of the, the Dembele drop-off. I just feel like Dembele's playing um, possibly with an injury again. Uh, that seems well, to Well, that's what Pochettino in. said, that he's, mm. he's has got injury. He's um, a foot injury, right? That's, I think that's yeah, it. I think so. It's just a li- basically a little niggle, but it's always there. And in, whereas in, he didn't have any case, problems last year. And... and I, I do. I kind of think, why do why persist with him then? Why not just let him recover? Particularly when we've got someone like Winks, who's now proven that he's capable of of playing in a Premier League midfield. But Winks is this is only his second start. I don't. I know Pochettino does throw players in, but I still don't think he trusts him. At the moment, he thinks of uh, maybe eighty percent Dembele is better than a one hundred percent Winks. I think it's a lot of responsibility to put Winks, mm. kind of ask him to play that role. Maybe maybe he'll do it. It'll be a, it's going to be busy over Christmas. There'll be a lot of games coming, so we'll see what happens to Winks. But I, I would still I would still persist even with a broken Dembele. What about dropping Eriksson back because he's had a couple of fairly effective games in the in the deeper position. I don't know. I thought in the last game when he dropped a little bit deeper, I I, I thought he's better forward. I think I think Eriksson's starting to find that goal scoring touch. He's getting in the box. I wouldn't want to take that away from him now. Not when he's finally making those runs that we've been wait- that we've been looking for. Yeah, he's he's best in the hall, and he's yeah. the most informed player right now. So I don't think you move him deeper when he's the only one that looks genuinely dangerous. And he's our most. I don't know the stats on this, but I think he's our most trustworthy passer. If there's a through ball on or a quick ball that needs to go wide to get to get an attack going. I would trust him more than the others at the moment. Lamella would be the only one that I think I'd yeah. probably rate higher than um, Ericsson in terms of spotting a pass and, yeah. and being able to play it. Um, so what do you think the impact is of um, our sort of double pivot not working? How do you think it's affected Ali and Ericsson and Lamella slash Son? Because there's been a lot of talk about Ali's drop-off this year. Um, obviously, he's a young player... He's made a huge step up. He had a real good season last year. But there were so many games last year, actually, where we were kind of saying, oh, Ali probably needs to come off now, and then he'd score a wonder goal. Um, not least the Crystal Palace one. But that wasn't unusual. That was the kind of... I mean, I, I embarrassed myself many times on Twitter last year saying I would take Ali off, and then he'd, he'd shut me up with a, with a late winner. But I don't think... I don't think he has been as good this year, and I think he's starting to lose confidence a bit. But do you think there has been an impact of the kind of Dembele and whoever double pivot not working do you think that's had a knock on effect on Ali's form well with Ali I've been reading Raphael Honestein's Das Reboot and there was a, there was a, there was a passage in it which just made me think of Ali and it was something to do with Thomas Muller and um, when he was uh, when he was a youngster um, Jürgen Klingsman when his manager Bayern was, was going to get rid of him he wanted to sell him he didn't see a future for him but the Bayern youth team coach vetoed it went to the top stopped it and he said he has a rare and valuable talent he can play badly for 90 minutes but still score mm. and it's just something that's been stuck in my head for a while mm. and I'm not you know I'm not going to compare Ali to Thomas Muller but there is that something about him that he may not contribute 
to the style of how we play. He'll, he'll press and everything else, but he may not get involved in the link-ups and everything else, but he does score goals. And he gets involved in, in the final third, and he's, 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 he's dangerous. So I mean, even though he might be off form... I don't think I know you might have a different view, but I don't think you can. I don't think you could drop him, and I would persist with him as well. It is difficult. It's that argument of like an individual productivity versus the team collective. And at the moment, you would say that in the general approach play, he's having a negative impact, but he is still having a lot of chances. And he's, you know, had he been a little bit more clinical, he could have had five, six, seven goals in the last month or so. Mm. I mean, he could have had a hat trick against Seska. So it's it's difficult to be too critical of him especially because he's young um, but when you are in a team like Pochettino's team where there is an aversion to risk and every other player is um, quite sensible on the ball it does stand out a lot more when Ali is giving the ball away with fancy flicks and he's doing nutmegs that he doesn't need to do but then equally you do lose something if you take out that one un- unpredictable player Like that's a real asset to have at the same time so where would you play him? What, where do you? Think? I like him deeper. I think he reminds me a lot of Paul Pogba. Paul Pogba. <coughs> um, <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he's he's got that kind of ranginess, and it's the same with Pogba. Where he did quite a good interview with Thierry Henry, and Thierry Henry sort of said to him, "You don't have any real strengths, um, but then you don't have any weaknesses either." Like he's got a lot of good things, the jack of all trades, and I kind of see that in Ali that mm. he's a good passer but not a great one. Mm. He's a good athlete. He's he's rangy. Um, he's not necessarily great in tight spaces, um, but he's he's good in the, in and around the box. So I like him a little bit deeper when he's got room to move in. I don't like him so much when uh, he's getting the ball with his back to goal. But then that kind of does link it back into the the problem of having Wanyama and Dembele where they're not on form is that because they're getting the ball a little bit slower because they're getting it uh, in less space he's got less to work with and the defence is more organised because they've not been able to break through quick enough so it's, it's I think he's probably had the worst impact it's also weird the role that he is having because he's almost playing like the Jay Rodriguez role mm. at Southampton mm. except you wouldn't really say him as a striker and actually in when we played with the the back three you could nearly have gone like a top a front two um, and maybe if Janssen was fit Pochettino might have played Janssen and Kane together because Ali was almost playing as just like a second striker okay. um, and then when he's not scoring and then he's not contributing to build up play he does become a bit of an issue uh, but he, like I say I think he is probably the most unpredictable player and that is a really good quality to have I think perhaps as he gets older he will drop deeper but at the moment I don't think I, w- I would trust him to, to kind of play that deeper role I, I He's, he's not on the greatest form, so you kind of you don't want him in a key place. You can keep him up wide, where he will still press and he'll still get involved and he'll create chance. He'll get involved. He'll get good chances, but he doesn't have the responsibility of actually making this tick. So maybe in the future I would see him dropping deeper. But then I always thought Ericsson would end up coming further, coming further back, and I, I don't see that happening either at the moment. So we're going to move on to talk about Lamella, but to start with, if Lamella had been fit for, say, the last two months, would Ali have been on the bench for you? I think he might have been, yeah. I I would have trialled Son, Lamella, Kane and then Ericsson and then a two of whether it's Dyer or Wanyama and then Dembele. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's difficult, though, because you don't want to dent someone's confidence and he is a player that is all about confidence. He's all about swagger and... It's his second full season. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, di- it's it's difficult to be too harsh about him, and he's so young as well. 
and also he see, he seems like such an integral part of the, the kind of squad as well not just in terms of him being an important player in our team but he seems like a popular member of, of the squad almost the poster boy of Pochettino's Tottenham in many ways because he's he's brought in this kid he's made him an England regular he had a storming first season where he won plaudits from pretty much everyone across the footballing um, sphere you can see Pochettino loves him as well he loves the oh. naughtiness of him as well yeah, like he mentions yeah. it quite a lot when he's not when he's not got that streak to him Poch has that it's glint in his eye yeah, when he talks yeah. about Ali he, li- he likes he, he likes himself in Ali I think yeah I think he, he really likes his kind of snidiness that mm. he can get stuck in he can be a bit uh, be a bit naughty I think um, as well with the uh, the difficulty um, Ali has is I've completely lost my <laughs> when we talk about Ali's attitude I do love his attitude as well when he stays but when he doesn't cross the line he he is a niggly player as long as he doesn't cross the line and do stuff like he did against West Brom last year which we haven't seen we haven't seen the, the, he did the stamp as well against Fiorentina did the punch against um, Jakob we haven't he hasn't crossed that line again so he has learnt from that and I do quite like that he, he has but He's also been highlighted on an almost weekly basis for his simulation and making mm. the most of challenges, and that's—I mean—that's not ideal. We don't really want our players to be dragged through the mud in terms of diving. Um, and, and I think it was match of day. Did like a—they put together a basically thirty seconds worth of footage of Ali just diving, going down <laughs> easily. It was—it was almost embarrassing, actually. Um, I don't like that. But you're right. He's kind of cut back on some of the really out, yeah. outlandish stuff. So when when I um, first approached you and to come on this, I kind of asked him if there was anything in particular that he'd like to speak about, and I had this feeling in the back of my mind that he might want to talk about Lamella because he's a bit of a fanboy, and and I'm a bit of a Lamella fanboy as well, and I'm not afraid to say that. Um, but what is it you like about Lamella so much, Ewan? Just the the risk taking. Mm. I mentioned a little bit of Ali about um, that he will take risks. I think Lamella is the the one person that early on in the phase of play will play like a tight, like a little short pass that just gets everything moving quicker, gets everyone moving up the pitch. Um, and I think it's one of those things as well that you can't really back up in stats. It's just kind of like you're just seeing it with your eyes. You're saying this is a person that brings extra tempo to our game off the ball as well. His pressing is outrageous. Whenever he's not there, you feel like you lose something going forward, especially against uh, Liverpool last season. And he was missing. You just felt that even if he had been able to come off, off the bench like he did against Manchester City, drove at the, the heart of the, the Man City midfield and then played in Ericsson he sums up to me so much of what was good about what we thought we were getting Pochettino early doors not that I'm like being critical of Pochettino but going back to saying that it looked like it was much more counter-pressing that you get the ball you attack as quickly as possible Lamella is more that style and I think when he's not in the side you lose but then you could say that about every single player in the side which is one of the great things about the team and how it's so balanced Buddy, thoughts on Lamella? Are you a, are you a fan? Uh, I don't know. I'm always split with Lamella. I, I can see the qualities he's got, but there are occasions where he does upset me. But he does play high risk balls. He does try. He does try to do that something a little bit different. But what he brings to the team is is, is you can't doubt that he brings he brings a quality to our front three that no one else does. For me, I think it's partly the. I mean, it's so obvious, but the pressing from the front and when he's not there. It's like sometimes we don't have, we just don't have the same tempo from the start, and that's such an obvious thing to say, um, and it's such a, a basic requirement of a Pochettino team that you would start try and start in the front foot and be aggressive and press quickly. But Lamella is so good at it, and he he'll 
he'll put his body on the line and he'll try and get between players and the ball and he'll go to okay he does go to ground perhaps a bit too much but going to ground in that way can can really kind of inspire his teammates to do the same thing and chase after the ball and this is a weird this is a weird point as well I like about Lamella he's really good at being the scapegoat like every team you need to have a worse player yeah. it's just like naturally you need to have someone that everyone moans at but at least with Lamella if there's the groans come in you know that he's still going to keep doing what he's doing yeah you know? he, he doesn't he, he's got yeah. such confidence in himself he doesn't stop does he? he's in te- absolutely incessant with his but uh, if, if he's he missing and there's someone else everyone's grown Ericsson you kind of see him retreat into a shell a bit but it just doesn't happen with Lamella that's a really interesting point actually. that's why we signed Sissoko to be, to be <laughs> the ultimate scapegoat who actually I think has been playing quite well yes yeah, he had a really good game he, yeah. against uh, he played well against Hull and he changed the match against Burnley yeah. as well yeah, yeah. But yeah, he was he was signed blatantly to be the scapegoat. But what do you, to take the pressure off everyone why, else. Why do you think the fans ha- or some of the fans haven't warmed to Lamella? Is it just his haircut? I the think fact he looks a bit feminine. I think it's the the price tag and the fact that he came in, he took Bale's number. He we I mean we lost one of the greatest players in the world, and we signed this guy who came with a big reputation, and he, he didn't deliver, and he disappeared, and it kind of his poor performances on that first year coupled with his injuries all fell in Sherwood and everything else and it was just a disaster and it was it was he, he's always struggled I think to recover from that first bad season and he has been with us a, a long time now personally I, I still think we need to see a little bit more from him I'd like a few more goals yeah. I, I can't remember off the top of my head how many he scored last season in the league but I would not like, enough yeah no. I would like I more I want to say 7 I need to check that. I would like to see him score 10 goals Ali scored 10 goals he's on course to score another 10 this year he's already got 4 I would like to see Lamella get to double figures with goals and then you know I'm, I'm asking a lot but that, that would make me kind of then yeah then I'd let that little doubt that I have about him go I was liking him to Willian um, because Willian is a player that doesn't really score assists much mm. as well but um, he's in for two reasons one is that he's a ridiculously good defensive winger that he can shut down a flank and I think Lamella can do that and then he's also in for his set pieces and I think we've really messed Lamella's set pieces um, I was looking at the stats and uh, Ericsson has succeeded with 11 of 56 corners into the box yeah. whereas Lamella succeeds with 8 of 16 so not having him I mean the difference there is 19% versus That's 50% yeah. so the, and then as a result we've only scored 2 goals from set pieces only Sunderland have scored fewer so you wipe that out and you say someone like Liverpool have scored I think 9 goals from set pieces so like right there if you improve your set pieces and you be a much more um you get goals goal from other other areas that's that's set pieces are such an important part of, of football at both ends and if you've got someone who can deliver a, a quality ball into the box that makes it easy to score then that's a huge advantage over other teams Lamella actually he doesn't get he doesn't get as many assists as he should but he this year he's got he's averaging 2.7 key passes per 90 which is the joint highest of Ericsson which actually surprised me I thought he'd be a lot lower than that because this year it's felt like he hasn't played as many through balls. But he's clearly being as creative as he was last year. There was an article you mentioned on the last pod mm. um, and it had the locations of where passes mm. were played from. And it had like a specific one called the attacking forward passes. And Lamella actually came out on top of that um, ahead of Ericsson. Mm. And I thought that was quite interesting because that kind of backs up what I think I see in Lamella is that he's the one that, in the middle of the pitch, in open play, he's the one that most frequently creates the gap creates the space creates the pass and I, I actually I think I trust him slightly more than Ericsson to make the pass because sometimes Ericsson's weight of pass is a little bit off whereas Lamella is generally a little bit more reliable I saw an um, interesting stat on Ericsson that since his debut in 2013 in the Premier League 
He's been involved in 55 goals, 28 goals, 27 assists, and only Eden Hazard has done more than that. He's yeah, on I mean, 60. Numbers-wise, he's a monster. Yeah. But it's weird because when I talk to people who aren't Spurs fans, some of them see Ericsson, they would use the word fraud, that he'll do it against <laughs> little teams, but like he doesn't turn up against the big ones, even though I mean he scored against Chelsea. So it's, di- it's difficult because he kind of seems to do it as well in patches, that he'll mm. go... You know, ten games where he'll, yeah. he's getting a goal or assist every game, and then he'll go ten games where he's not really doing yeah. it. And you, he, because he is, this is a problem that every team has. I'd say West Ham, especially this season with Payet, when your best player, your most creative player, isn't hitting those heights, it's all the more noticeable. And then it, you really do kind of dig them out. Like Payet's been still creating lots of chances, but they're not being taken, mm-hmm. so it's difficult for West Ham. He's they're kind of turning on Payet a bit. Yeah, Ericsson is like peak Paolo Wanchop who would just go like <laughs> 10 games Paolo Wanchop would destroy everybody for like a few games and then just disappear then come back and oh shit <laughs> and it, it just raises expectations and you, you kind of expect him to do it throughout the whole season rather than just in patches and then that's the difference between a good player a great player and a world class player yeah. is just consistency doing it every exactly. game it's what yeah. makes Lionel Messi and Ronaldo so ridiculous mm. So going back to Lamella briefly I noticed that this year he's played as many matches on the left as he has on the right and I think that's probably to do with the fact that we were playing some 4-1-4-1 and in that formation because we had that extra player uh, behind the striker you probably needed a natural left-sided player to create the width and therefore stretch the pitch more and and create room for another player to slot in there Um, do you prefer him on the right on the left have you got do you think he's fine either side I prefer him through the middle. Yeah. I think as well, when he came from Roma, Totti was talking about him as being the heir to the number 10 shirt at Roma, mm. playing through the middle. So, I mean, I like him on the left because it means he's cutting into that number 10 space. I mean, when he when he's on the right, he's cutting into the, the number 10 space. On the left, I don't like him so much because he's not going to whip the ball in. But then at the same time, you kind of think Pochino probably likes having him coming inside because then it gives more space to Rose to overlap. Um I would like to see him given an extended run through the middle because I think that's probably where it's best. And often as well, Ericsson is most productive coming in off the left as well and scoring goals. Mm. That's the thing. We've got we've got three players in Son, um, Ericsson and Ali who may be all best coming in off the left, I think. Yeah, and they all play similar. It's, it's one of the things that kind of annoyed me that we didn't sign a, another player to be one of those three behind the striker this summer. When you compare the differences between our three they aren't that stark like you wouldn't say that they all complement each other mm. whereas if you look at like Liverpool's three where you've got Mane who does this crazy running in behind and he's got yeah. the speed then you've got Coutinho doing the playmaking then you've got Firmino drifting around scoring goals it feels like a much better balance between their three than our three yeah and they've got they've got alternatives as well Sturridge and yeah, Origi exactly. bring something different uh, yeah I would like us to have signed something but well, then we sign Janssen who does give us something different but I would prefer I would like another kind of like Hamis Rodriguez, let's. Yeah. Um, he's 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 he for sale, dream and well, he's for yeah. sale. Yeah, I mean, is is that viable? No, of course not. But <laughs> he, he, <laughs> we're never going to pay him his money. Be huge, right? But Isco's linked still. And there's, yeah. there's still murmurings of Isco, and, and neither of these players are getting in, are they? They're not. They haven't played much this year. Been Isco's played more. Yeah, Isco's but then more. that's because there's been lots of injuries. So yeah. maybe once their team is fully fit again, he goes back to the bench. Yeah. Uh, Hammers at the World Club Cup suggested that. And Zidane kind of hinted that there's a there's a way out for Hamas if somebody if somebody's willing to pay, wow. he can go. That'd be great. Wow. One more question before we wrap <laughs> it up, uh, from Mapsy ninety one, who is a um, yeah loyal Fighting Cock supporter, and we appreciate him for that. He says, "Why do you think our attitude slash style is so much worse in Europa?" 
and he used the hashtag TFC extra inch, which I love. In, in Europe. Oh, sorry, in Europe. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I've got. I've been upset. I've got really upset about our performances in the Champions League and mm. the fact that we rested players to play a game that that could get us back in the Champions League when we were already there. I think we've. I think maybe we've struggled with Wembley, and I think we've just we came up against a Monaco team that were that were really good, much better than we expected. And Leverkusen, despite their problems in the league, did raise it against us, and they they were much better than expected as well. I mean, we beat we beat Seska twice, and we we took a point away, and then I don't think we did as bad as it probably suggests we did, but um, I was just disappointed. We seemed to lack intensity, and we were unwilling to fully commit into those into those big games. Yeah, I agree completely. And uh, it's a little bit disappointing not putting out the full strength team against Monaco, mm. and leaving Vertonghen and Walker out because it, there was almost like an attitude that these teams you could beat them with a weakened team, yep. when actually they're way more organised. Like if you okay, if you're playing like a Burnley or a Hole in the Premier League, you can get away with playing your string string players like a Trippier because uh, you know roughly that they're not going to cause you that much danger Monaco are the most potent attack in Europe no team scored more goals so it's really weird that they didn't put more emphasis on it and then I suppose if the manager says I'm not going to play my strongest team it doesn't necessarily give off the right vibe for the rest of the team to go out and be dominant yeah I mean playing Trippier in those Champions League games it just it's it's just offensive to, to, to the Champions League we've been trying to get there and then we get there and Trippier lines up and Wimmer comes in and it's just like come on You've got to play play your best team. This is the pinnacle of club football. Why are we not Why are we not going for it? So glad you both said that because I I was going to mention the fullbacks and I know that I've kind of got this reputation as being a bit of a Trippier hater, which I'm not. I just think Walker is so much better now. There's yes. such a golfing quality at both ends of the pitch, um, but also Ben Davies. I mean, he's played in two of the Wembley games, I believe. I think he played in the first two Wembley games and he, he, he just doesn't want to burst forward into that space like Rose does. And the way that Rose um, attacked against Burnley, it was so dynamic. He eats up the ground, he gets he attacks the box and he wants to create goals and chances. Ben Davis has not got that in him. Ben Davis is, is a fairly intelligent footballer. He's good at those un, underlapping runs. Um, he's fairly smart defensively. But he's very cautious. He's he's a, a player that doesn't want to commit too often, and when he does, it's kind of almost too late. Um, and I, I think you're kind of playing with the handbrake on when you've got Davies and Trippier in the team. Ben Davies is a very good third centre centre back playing on the left. We saw that with Wales. I think well, I'm, I'm fascinated to see if that maybe becomes his thing at Spurs because. I don't think he's a Pochettino fullback. I really no. don't. I don't think he's ever going to become a Pochettino fullback. So now we're playing three at the back more regularly. Could that become his position? I think it could become an understudy to Vertonghen quite easily. But you're right. As a left back, he doesn't offer anything that you would expect off a, a dynamic fullback. And um, him and Trippier, they cost us. Our fullbacks are key to how we play. And there's a beautiful photo of after Rose scored, of Rose and, and yeah, Walker running amazing. together. And it's just like those two are unbelievable fullbacks. And when we take them away, and it's not it's not dissing Trippier. I, I kind of I like bits of Trippier. I think he's got quality cross and he's okay positionally. But when you rely on your fullbacks for whip and then you take those two guys out, you're going to struggle. And that's part of the reason why we we had problems in the Champions League. It's weird as well that they have reinforce both those backup positions under Pochettino and yet they sign players that feel really ill-suited to 
stepping in for them because they don't have pace, they don't press, they're not very uh, strong at overlapping. Trippier is okay at crossing, like you say, but yep. you would say that's from deep. He's yeah. um, and maybe they were bought as like a plan B that if you need someone just to hit balls into the box. Yeah. But it is odd that the fullbacks are so important to our style of play, and yet if one is missing, you wipe out that sort of width. Yeah, but I think that's also a problem that the fact we can't offer regular Champions League. If we are in the Champions League regularly, then you can say, look, we've got Rosen Walker, and then you go out and sign two equally good fullbacks and say, look, between all these competitions we've got, you're going to get game time. At the moment, we're not really in that position. We can't go out and try and sign an amazing left back and say, look, don't worry, we'll be in the Champions League next season because we might not be. And and how many teams have two good fullbacks on either side? I mean, it's so rare that. Fullback is one of those positions that's become incredibly important to all teams, and there are very few good ones, to be honest, in the league. And I think we've probably got the best two. I'd say Bayerin, unfortunately, is sort of up there with pushing yeah. Walker. He's a great player. He's a phenomenal player. Um, Klein's really good as well. Klein's very good, yeah. Um, on the left, I, I, I think Rose. Well, is... Jamie Carragher put Ryan Bertrand in, as, in his team of the season what? so far ahead of Danny Rose. Yeah, I'm <laughs> staggered by that. I don't. Bertrand's okay, but Rose is so much Next more level, dynamic. Yeah. I mean, the way Rose uses his body to outmuscle opposition wingers is staggering. He's not a big guy, but he just knows what to do and where to be. He's incredible. I mean, you can see how fullbacks change that. Antonio Valencia is now a, I, I think, very I rate him as a yeah, very good, good right back. Yeah. I mean, he's he's strong. He gets forward. I, I I like that, and you can see. He's a winger who's now a fullback, and things. That's football's changed. The same that with way. Bellerin as well was winger. They brought mm. him from Barcelona as a winger. Danny Rose was a winger. Yeah, it feels like the the attacking aspect of the fullback is so much more important than defending. Wait until Andros Townsend. Is, <laughs> <laughs> is, is Red, Redknapp tried that, didn't he? He did, did try. Oh, yeah, yeah, he tried to he convert. Try he tried to convert Townsend. I mean, I, yeah. As they convert, he used him at left back mm. in a couple of. Um, Europa League games, and I think I saw some youth games where he was like playing like yeah. a fullback position yeah. as well. I mean, so Redknapp, Redknapp, is, was it, Redknapp also played Bale on the opposite wing so maybe when we look back at football maybe in 50 years time that <laughs> the next generation Redknapp will be at the, <laughs> the heart of everything I think it's more luck than judgement in many ways <laughs> cool I think we're done I mean we've got, the only thing left to do is our further reading section which was very popular actually um, so what have you guys been reading this week or listening to I've, I've actually Got got a listening for further reading, cool. and it was the uh, the Scout Seven podcast. Okay, um, and it was interesting this week because Rob McKenzie was on it, who obviously used to be at Spurs. Yeah, and that it was it's all about the role of data and analysis in recruitment, and they do briefly touch upon Tottenham. And the thing that I found most interesting about it was that for all the they talked about the Anson signing and for all the stats that you think might go into it is actually like the human qualities of the player that they emphasised so they were saying that when they knew that they wanted to find a backup striker one they had to be happy to play backup two they wanted it in the age range of 21 to 25 three they had to have shown throughout the career that they're they can work hard and they can stick to those Pochettino fundamentals and actually once you do all those sort of non-stat stuff non-playing stuff you get quite a limited pool of what you can look for um, so I found that interesting uh, as to how recruitment is used and also he, he Rob McKenzie said that uh, he had recommended that Leicester sign Harry Kane and that I think his reputation might have taken a little knock because he wasn't particularly good then but then obviously he was played the long game Am I right in thinking that McKenzie identified Kante and Mahrez? No I, th- I think that was um, 
Steve Walsh. They, I think Mares. Okay. They had gone to watch someone else, and then just saw Mares having like the game of his life, and he was available for like three hundred thousand, so they bought him. Kante, actually, Kante. Bielsa wanted to team Kante and uh, Idrissa Gay uh, together. Which, wow. if you imagine those two <laughs> together in the same midfield, the midfield ever. Yeah, it would have been absolutely unreal. Um, I've read I wish I hadn't picked this now after your comment earlier but Rory Smith who's um, he's now chief um, soccer correspondent for New York Times he wrote a really nice article on um, on uh, Francesco Totti a uh, uh, Roman to the core he's pinned it on his Twitter feed and it's a wonderful it's a wonderful article about because uh, he's now um, 40 years old he's still playing and it's just a wonderful article about um, a guy who's um, a proper not like Steven Gerrard he's a proper one club man and the fact that he's turned everybody else down and, it, and it, the, he interviews him and talks about his beliefs and what he feels for the club and how much he loves the club and there's also one line in there which if T's listening it says Vincent Candela who's one of my ultimate favourite footballers of all time Totti calls him one of the greatest technicians he's ever seen on a football mm. pitch and for me that just proves that the loneliness is wrong and <laughs> Vincent Candela is the greatest fullback that's ever existed love it amazing um, I, I really enjoyed I listened to the first time long time podcast by Aaron Wolf, um, episode 2 The Fan yes. about his, yes. his uh, support of Tottenham which was a phenomenal listen Aaron just such an intelligent and articulate guy and the production was excellent so I'd highly recommend that to anyone um, and I read last night a good article on 442 by a guy called Chris Flanagan um, called Analyzed Why Spurs Are Shot Kings But Liverpool Score More, which is really interesting about the kind of areas we shoot from and who's taking those shots. So something else to keep an eye on. But um, yeah, I think we're done. Um, Ewan, thank you for joining us. No problem, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. But unfortunately, it'll be the last time that you're on, at least for a while, because you're, you're going away. Yep. Going to get one way ticket, ticket to Japan and perhaps never come back unbelievable well, well, well as soon as you're back in the back. country let us know we'd love <laughs> yeah. to be back on um, Bardi as ever thank you cheers Wendy nice if you've got any feedback for us or any questions then use the hashtag TFC Extra Inch but otherwise have a good one it's the fight in it's the fight in